Did you know that Cypress has trademarked Halloumi? If I adjust my FaceTime lighting, do I look like George Clooney? Last episode, we heard from Seabrand, who has a problem with their father's enormous toaster collection. Yes, too long, don't listen. Her dad has loads of toasters. She's not sure how to cope with them from New Zealand if and when he passes away. In British Columbia. Correct. And you suggested that the family set up a toaster museum. Seabrand has got back in touch to say, my dad actually does have a toaster museum in my stepmom's restaurant. We have corroboration of the toaster museum because we also had an email from Claire in Edinburgh who says... I think I've been to the northern British Columbia toaster town you mentioned. And she sent some photos because Claire had breakfast at Seabrand Stepmom's Toaster Museum and Cafe. We assume, unless of course there is a rival toaster museum and cafe in a rival British Columbian town, in which case it proves the business model, I would say, anyway. No, I'm I'm pretty sure it's this one. <laughs> Claire says, from the poster on the wall, it seems that Seabrand's dad is still on the hunt for more toasters. The photo Claire took of the wall shows there's a sign saying, wanted toasters. And I think that means he wants toasters, not the toasters are wanted for crimes. And then there's many pictures of the toasters that he wants. So he's specific. I read a fascinating thing the other day, actually, about the history of cold toast being a class thing in this country. You know how aristocracy are always kind of like, you know, they have those special stands to hold their toast in and then they eat it when it's not really hot anymore. Yeah. The reason for that is because if you've got people serving you, then by the time it comes up from the kitchen, it will be cold. So actually, Uh. (laughs) the posher you were, the colder the toast was you had. And rich people never realised how nice toast is straight out of the grill. They never had that experience. Mm. Not even grill. Like toasting fork over fire. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but the poor people who were sitting by the fire, they'd know the delight of butter straight onto hot toast. Claire also drops in a little fact that uh, I was interested in. So she went on this big three-week road trip around uh, British Columbia and also crossed the border into Haida, Alaska, where Insomnia, mm-hmm. the Christopher Nolan film, was filmed. I have not seen that movie since it came out in Same. 2002. I remember thinking it I'd good, be intrigued to see it again. When, yeah. I'd be semi-intrigued because I think that was the last time I enjoyed a Christopher Nolan film. She says, one local restaurant owner had nothing but good stuff to say about Robin Williams and all he did for the town while he was there, but declared that Al Pacino was a poop, which instantly <laughs> became a family catchphrase. I don't remember the plot of the film, but was Al Pacino playing the poop in that scenario? Because he is a method actor, isn't he? Maybe he walked around being a poop because he had to portray a poop. He played the poop emoji in the Emoji Movie. (laughs) (laughs) That could be true, for all I know. I guess, yeah. I haven't seen it, to be fair. Here's a question from someone who, for anonymity purposes, would like to be known as Paula. Paula says, Every morning I wake up, look outside, and declare it another glorious day in lockdown. Then I go outside to soak up the glory, but I am plagued by my next-door neighbour's children's screams all day, every day. Now, I know I'm being a dick by saying it's annoying. After all, they're only two and a half years old. But if the neighbours were playing loud music all the time, then most people would agree that's annoying, right? My girlfriend is working from home and has to sit with the windows closed as it's so loud. So, Ollie, answer me this. How do I politely ask them to shut the fuck up? (laughs) Does she mean ask the two and a half year olds to shut the fuck up or the neighbours who are in charge of them? Yeah, If she means the former, then she could certainly work on a politer version than that. Do I even have a right to ask them to shut the fuck up? I should add that, yes, I wear noise cancelling headphones and I can still sometimes hear them. Okay, look, Paula, I mean, two and a half year old children make noise. There's not much that can be done about that that doesn't to some degree qualify as abusive. And I want you to know, as a parent, when the shoe's on the other foot, when you're thinking that your child is making the noise that might be obstructive to other people, it can be mortifying. You don't really want to have to think about that when they're running around free and having fun, especially in their own garden. But um, you do feel those glares of judgment. And what I usually try and bear in mind myself is I think, well, the person who's complaining, you have been a child yourself in the past, so you have made noise. Oh, I didn't make noise as a child. Because no one gave a shit. (laughs) They were like, shut up until you're 21. Um, And I I do think it's very difficult to really chastise a child for making noise. Yes, I agree. However, this is a slightly different scenario that we're in at the moment, where you can't go anywhere else, and neither can they. Um, So I would suggest the following white lie. I would suggest passing your neighbours a note through the letterbox or chatting to them informally over the fence, don't know what your relationship's like with your neighbours, saying that at a particular time, so for example, Thursday at 4pm. On Thursday at 4pm, I'm doing a really important work call. 
at that particular time, for that particular hour, because it's a really important call, for example, would you mind not letting your kids outside during that one-hour window just because I can hear them in the background of the call and it's a bit distracting? And judge how the neighbours react to that preliminary request. Because it could be the gateway to, oh my god, we didn't realise that they were disturbing your work, how awful, we'll try and keep them quieter all the time. Or it could be, fuck you, don't tell me how to look after my children, in which case, you know, there are different things that you need to look into doing. So that would be my first step. Uh Second step would be, buy the kids a gift which has to be played indoors. Mm, What would that be? Doll's house? Yeah, Doll's house, good one. Large train set, jigsaw. (laughs) Something that you don't want lots of pieces outside. And then, you know, it's a generous act that you're doing. The parents will feel that you've given them something to take them off their hands as well, but they'll be forced to be indoors. I presume also that if it's annoying you, it's probably annoying the parents even more. I don't know, you become slightly immune to it. As long as they're making noise somewhere that isn't in your face, that can be enough sometimes. I suppose you lose like several registers of hearing. (laughs) Or if you can't silence them, join them. Like my brother's child decided to learn violin from quite an early age. And violin's a tricky instrument, particularly in the first few years. It's Mm. hard to make that thing sound nice. So during violin practice, my brother would play guitar and the violin instantly like sounded a lot less screechy and painful to listen to because it was like there was some structure to the noise. So maybe Paula could go outside with like a tambourine or something and put in some beats. And if that was a Richard Curtis film, then obviously they'd end up unwittingly becoming a band, wouldn't they? And at the very least, it'll be a cute uh, local newspaper story. <laughs> Have I told my Gloria Hunniford story? I, tr- I mean, you know my feelings for Gloria. You've piqued my interest. <laughs> I don't believe so. I've not met her, but it's about a time in uh, the mid-90s when Gloria Uh Hunniford got into trouble. I had a school friend who lived next door to Gloria Hunniford. How have you never told me this before when I've told you my Lansbury-type passions for Gloria Hunniford? Shit, well, maybe I didn't want you to know where she lived. (laughs) (laughs) I think it was around when we'd finished GCSE, so let's put it around 1995. One night, Gloria Hunniford had a big party and... There was some really hilariously bad music at the party. So uh, my friends and I went into the back garden of my friend's house next door (gasps) and sang along to it because it was funny. And then a few days later, there was a lot of upset in the local papers, like Gloria's loud party, neighbours furious. And Gloria's defence was not all the neighbours hated it. The ones next door (laughs) enjoyed it so much they even sang along. That's great. That was my first taste of fame. Touched by glory. Uh, <laughs> well, untouched physically. Yeah. We touched her life in a positive way. No, but that's interesting. It's, it's also just like, for me, just the furtive excitement of a Gloria Hunniford party. What was that? Like, what, yeah. you know, what was going on behind those doors? Who was there? I'm imagining like Terry Wogan doing lines of coke off Gabby Roslin now. Jason Donovan falling over. Donny Osmond prancing around with an animal mask on and nothing else. <laughs> it's quite a high fence. So unfortunately, I couldn't see anything. But uh, it was about the most showbizy, decadent thing uh, up to that point in my life and for many years after that's great you're welcome i, I could end the show here <laughs> <laughs> a new gloria hunniford anecdote uh, right we've had another question now in the tradition of uh, what are those seaside face holes called uh, it's from um, <laughs> jessica who says i swear this had a proper name like a galvani machine or a tesla machine or a volta machine but the internet apparently has absolutely been scrubbed of this information and refers to it as a plasma lamp a ball and a globe really suspicious but helen answer me this what is this mad lightning globe that you touch and the lightning comes to you called I'm not sure that's an elegantly written question, but I, I think we know what she means. It's the science museum thing, isn't it? Where you put your fingers on the globe and it goes... Bzzz. Yeah, it's like a dandelion clock made of light and the Innovations Catalogue used to sell them. The Innovations Catalogue. Oh, that and a Honeyford party. I'm happy for the day. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> Did you ever have one of these lamps? I didn't. I had a lava lamp, which yeah. I know isn't at all the same thing, but I suppose they're both kind of basic science dressed up as aesthetics, aren't they? And I, I felt like the lava lamp and the plasma ball thing we're discussing... You couldn't have both. I think you only want one novelty light, probably, in your room. So lava or one of those ones that's like a spray made out of fibre optics. Or when I was at university, I had a clock that had a neon ring around it that would flash pink and blue. And people seemed really into that at like three in the morning. This is why I was closetly angry when a few Christmases ago, my wife bought me the Tetris light for Christmas. Mm. You know, the one with like the little pieces of Tetris style shapes that connect together and through some clever science thing, magnets or something... They light up as you put them on, even though they don't have wires coming out the back of them. Wow. And mm. it's cool, and it's Tetris, and I, I'm not a big gamer, but I am, if I'm anything, I'm a retro gamer, and I do love Tetris. So yeah. like, I see why she bought it for me, 
But I'm annoyed because of the novelty light rule. As you can say, you can only have one novelty light. I was ready for another lava lamp. I've always loved lava lamps. I'd created a space for a lava lamp, and then she bought me for Christmas the Tetris light. So I had to put that on display, and I'm like, I can't have a lava lamp now too. You can only have one novelty light. So there it is, and I just look at it angrily. You've got a house. Does that mean you can have one novelty light per room? You haven't visited our house since we had it done up, but it's very much not a house where a novelty light would be permitted in any room other than my office. Right. <laughs> I'm surprised that she bought you a novelty light. It seems like she's generally tried to curb your kitchen decor. Indeed, and that's the other thing. I was like, she's wrongly imagined the kind of shit I like. Like, I do want some shit there. I want a lava lamp, but she's... She's thought, oh, this is the kind of thing Ollie likes. He can put it in his office, but I don't like it. It's only going in the office. But it does look like the kind of thing that one of your children might love and want in their own room. Yes, Harvey plays with the Tetris light already, actually. Go on. I see well, where you're going. So, biff it off to there. Get yourself a lava lamp for your birthday. The problem is that it does have a lighting cord that goes in the bottom, which he's still just about young enough that he could wrap himself around his neck. Mm. So I think I've got to wait till he's probably seven-odd. Till he okay. can have it in his room. But all yes, right. all right, I'll schedule the lava lamp purchase <laughs> for 2022. Put it in your Google calendar. <laughs> Do you know that they cost £80 these days? Lava lamps? Yeah. Well, I think they cost about 40 quid 20-something years ago. So is that above inflation? I think that's a steep rise, yeah. I mean, it's, it's equivalent to probably property prices. <laughs> but it's definitely <laughs> above inflation for like Mars bars, yeah. yeah where are you getting your lava lamps, Foxton's? <laughs> It's calling, given that it's just a bottle of wax with a light bulb under it. It's so beautiful, though, isn't it? I could just watch that all night. I mean, obviously, I couldn't. I'd rather have Netflix, but I could if, you know, push came to shove. What about if you uh, just uh, let milk curdle for long enough and then watch the blobs go up and down? <laughs> Put a candle underneath it. Beautiful. Oh. Oh. Anyway, these machines, what are they called? Yeah, well, I found it weird that there's not more that I could find online about these uh, lamps because I'd imagine a lot of people are fans of them or at least they're like, oh yeah, those things. So the internet, I feel, has failed us all. Generally, the consensus does seem to be that they're called plasma lamps or plasma globes. And I asked Martin because I thought this is the kind of shit Martin would have had when young. Mm. Never had one. But you said that you'd only heard them called plasma lamps and not like Galvani lamps. Well, plasma globes, yeah. I've never heard them called those other things. It's a little bit like a Van de Graaff generator in terms of appearance, but those are much, much, much bigger, I think, and more dangerous. No, but hold on. You've got a PhD in physics, so what would you call it? Like, if you would, if you, if for some reason this came up <laughs> in one of your university classes or whatever, what would people describe it as in that setting amongst physics professionals? It has no practical use i can think of in physics like it is an ornamental item you know you say it's sort of um basic science dressed up as ornamentation but really it's really the other way around isn't it it's like uh it it looks pretty but you wouldn't use it as a piece of equipment so yeah i, I think physicists would just call it a plasma globe i wonder also whether it was something like nikola tesla invented this thing basically which is why it's sometimes called like a tesla ball or a tesla globe but mm. maybe plasma lamp or plasma ball is the generic and there have been other attempts to call it a particular thing, but none of them very widespread. Ground Star um, was like quite a big version of them, but it was still like the Ground Star Plasma Globe. Mm. As much as Jessica is dissatisfied with the names of these that she's found, apparently Tesla called it an inert gas discharge tube. <laughs> so that's less catchy, I would say. If you've got a question... Email your question to answer me this podcast at googlemail.com. 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 Here's a question from Ryan in Melbourne who says, Ollie, answer me this. How do American movie stars keep their teeth so white? Dentistry. Thanks. <laughs> see you next time <laughs> I I know what he means because obviously Hollywood stars have notably whiter teeth than even rich and celebrity people elsewhere in the world um, and that is I suppose cosmetic dentistry specifically veneers mm. um, but the history of veneers in Hollywood is properly fascinating do you know really? anything about it Ellen? no please tell me well they basically stick a bit of porcelain on the bottom of your teeth it's, it's the same <laughs> stuff your toilet's made out of <laughs> but but I thought that that was a relatively recent thing, naively. Like, I thought that was maybe post-Julia Roberts, pre-Simon Cowell. Mm. But no, veneers have been around since Hollywood, essentially. Wow. It all came out of uh, a dentist called Charles Pincus, mm -hmm. uh, who opened a practice on Hollywood and Vine in 1929. 
and wrote in a newsletter at the time, the camera is cruel in its relentless exposure of the slightest flaw in the mouth. Mm. A tooth turned even slightly out of line casts a shadow before it. Isn't that beautiful? Then he decided, what I'm going to do is file your teeth down to nubs and replace them with toilet. He, he realised there was a vacancy to be the Hollywood dentist because in the silent movie days, it was all about basically their bone structure and how beautiful they were. Mm. But in the days of talkies, which came about in the 1930s, late 1920s, people had to open their mouth and talk. And it was killing careers um, because their teeth just looked shit on screen. Mm. And um, he realised that this was coming down the track and uh, actually became the dentist first to Joan Crawford, who had root decay. Oh. And he capped her front teeth. And then James Dean, who had no back teeth, apparently. Wow. <laughs> and over time, he got loads of celebrity clients. So Montgomery Clift, uh, Fanny Bryce, Mae West. The big one, though, was Judy Garland. And the reason she was the big one was because of what happens in The Wizard of Oz. So you have that moment where it goes from black and white to Technicolor. And essentially, that is widely credited as the moment that America decided that that was the look, the teeth. Because when it goes colour, she starts singing over the rainbow and her teeth look magnificent. And that was his work. Those were his early prototype veneers in The Wizard of Oz. Wow. Did he give her rainbow teeth? No, but it was just like, it was because it was the moment where the whole audience went, wow, it's colour. That was like, it's like for the first time they're seeing this huge vision of beauty in front of them. Judy Garland's teeth. Um, and he was then taken on as a consultant by the Factor Brothers of Max Factor Cosmetics. What? Their surname was Factor? And developed with them this mixture of powdered plastic and porcelain, which is veneers. And ever since then, basically, that's been the American look. It, it's about Hollywood wanting to look like those Hollywood stars, but then more broadly, of course, the general public seeing that as the idyll of beauty. It's interesting as well when you see pictures of a Hollywood star that you're familiar with now and then their early career, and you think they look really different. What is it? And then often it is just their teeth are a completely different shape now. Yeah. So it's like not even really about the colour as much as it is the shape. And there's this whole subgenre of websites that are just about that, like typing in a celebrity who's got good teeth now will take you to a website where you see bad teeth, good teeth on a gallery. Most of those websites are actually blogs that are run by the cosmetic dentist industry. Uh, so more often than not, it's like the news pages of some Harley Street clinic or something. Oh, so it's like their propaganda. It's so weird that that's someone's job to just like, you know, write a news article, what appears to be journalism about Barbara Streisand's teeth, but is actually just a way of getting you onto their website so you get veneers. I, I used to do jobs like that, so <laughs> I can well imagine it. Do veneers stain? Eventually, but only after a long period. I think they last 10 to 15 years. And that's the problem. Like People say if you get the cheap ones, if you go, if a dentist says, I can do you a veneer at 200 pounds of teeth, don't take it because they will stain and they'll fall out. Right. So, But if you get the expensive ones, then they're like top grade toilet porcelain. Yes. But then the problem is, you know, if you've gone for the look where they looked perfect, then you've got to keep them looking perfect. And that's when you get the freakish. That's when you get the Simon Cowell thing, isn't it? He's obviously getting his teeth done every year. And that's when it's like sparkly clean. It's just bizarre. Well, I think the ones who are really good at it make them look natural. So they make them not look the brightest white. They make them look like a shade a human could generate if they had really good teeth naturally. Like, I haven't checked, but I bet Tom Hanks has nice teeth that look like a natural person's nice teeth. But they also do do uh, tooth bleaching, don't they? But the problem with that is that it can make your teeth very sensitive and like they can stain very easily after the process. Also, if you've had any fillings or caps or anything like that, Ah. those are colour matched to your old teeth. And then if you put a chemical on them, they either stay the same or they go some weird bleachy colour that isn't the same as the ones that you're naturally bleaching. So you've got to be careful with that. Because I've done that. I've used the, the bleaching strips. Um, but I've got two fake front teeth because I smashed my teeth out when I was a kid. Yeah. And so th- they are colour matched to my slightly yellowing British teeth. <laughs> so if, if I go dazzling white on the others, I've then got Bugs Bunny style, two very clear front teeth that are different colour. You have to tipex them in. Yes, exactly. Uh, Can I quote Pincus for a second time, just because I think this is amazing? I would love you to. Uh, This is what he said in 1948. He was talking about the set of veneers he'd made for Shirley Temple. Losing her baby teeth during the production of Stand Up and Cheer entailed many different types of restorations, which had to be constantly changed. Oh, God. All this had to be planned so as not to hold up the shooting schedule, as one day's loss meant approximately $15,000 in cost to the studio. Wow. I mean, that just tells you so much about Hollywood, doesn't it? You've got a seven-year-old who's naturally losing her teeth and they created a set of fake veneers and if they were slightly out of line, it cost $15,000 a day for them to overrun. So what happened to Shirley Temple is what happened to Shirley Temple because of the economics of it. 
That is horrible. It is horrifying, isn't it? When you really think through the implications of what he's discussing there. Yeah, and lots of people weren't watching on particularly high definition, so you would have hoped the tooth scrutiny wouldn't have been as severe, but evidently oh, it yeah, was. But fuck off massive screens, though. It might not have been high definition, True. but Shirley Temple's mm. teeth were probably oh. like three foot long. <laughs> <laughs> Here's another uh, question of uh, cosmetic engineering, uh, I guess. It's from Adam, who says, Helen, answer me this. When people get their bum holes bleached, oh, good. how are they doing it? <laughs> Is it actual bleach? No. Where do they go to get it done? How long does it normally take? Is it painful? Are you able to go to the toilet afterwards? And how long does the effect last? What What are they bleaching? Is it the skin? Yeah. Around your anus? anus? Yeah. Or like the bottom of your colon, the actual bit inside? <laughs> no, it's it's not your rectum. It's the skin it's around anus. the anus. Why do yeah. they... Why? Well, I mean, maybe Adam gives some insight into that, Martin, because he says, I guess I've somewhat thought about this subject in the past as I am a very white, pale gay guy. And imperfections and discoloration show up easily on my skin. So having a brown coloured crack is not as aesthetically pleasing on my white body. So Helen, if you answer this question, (laughs) and you happen to find any places in Yorkshire that provide this service, please mention them. It may be useful for you to know, Adam, that you can get home anal bleaching kits. Ah. If you are doing a home treatment, look for peels, creams or gels that use kojic acid, Mm -hmm. which is an exfoliating chemical. And I think is considered a bit safer and less irritating than previous iterations. So basically what this kind of anal bleaching does, I don't think any of them actually use bleach. So some of them are exfoliating, so they're just sloughing off dead cells, which are hyperpigmented. Mm-hmm. Others, there's a laser treatment that can break down dark pigment into smaller particles that then are carried away by white blood cells. And there's some others that break down melanin or reduce the number of melanin-producing cells around your anus. So it's not like household bleach or hair bleach on your anus. I think it's just that term is very easy for people to understand what is meant, making your anus more pale. It was uh, popularised by porn. I'm sure you'll be unsurprised to hear. Apparently, in the early 2000s, the adult film actress Tabitha Stevens had her anus bleached to look prettier on camera in the unscripted series <laughs> Doctor 90210. And that led to a big spike in uh, online searches for the procedure. And then when Courtney Kardashian revealed that she'd tried anal bleaching during a 2010 ah. episode of Courtney and Kim Take Miami, then like the trend was just... Uh, skyrocketing. How do you apply it yourself in a home kit? It's a great question. Put your legs over your shoulders. You're asking me as if I've tried it and (laughs) (laughs) I have not. Maybe they give you like a special go-go gadget arm. Yes. Can you can you get an attachment like those uh, those little things you put on your toilet that squirt water on people? You wouldn't want it to go in the wrong place or on the wrong anus. How many anuses do you have? If your mum came over for a cup of tea, you wouldn't want it to bleach her anus, for instance. The problem is with the home treatments that. It is more imprecise than a professional doing it. So the chemicals tend to be less strong than in professional treatments, but there's more likelihood that you'll get it up inside your anus or mm. on other parts of your body and it will cause a lot of irritation or you'll put on too much. And then you'll end up with a whiter anus than your skin, so well, like Santa Claus you anus. you could end up with scarring that causes you permanent problems because anal strictures can prevent the anus stretching properly during your bowel movements and that can be a bit of permanent damage. The other problem is that you have to have quite a lot of treatments for it to work. Oh, yeah. I think it takes a few treatments to see any difference, and then you have to keep it up. You have to do treatments like every few months. But the professional ones are hundreds, if not thousands of pounds, depending on what kind oh, really? you get. Mm, I think the laser ones are more expensive. So, are they, But they're not permanent, presumably. No, no, because your skin is getting darkened again, and it's not just uh, by poos. Lots of daily activities cause friction, like movement, walking, running, uh, sweating, sex, and the friction increases the skin pigmentation. Mm. So there's nothing really you can do to stop getting increased pigmentation in the first place. Maybe people should just accept a dark anus. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I have, and I'm happy with that decision. I have just not thought about what colour it might be down there. It's fine. I mean, live your life, obviously. Like, you know, sexually be into whatever you're into. But I do think particularly the anus, it's like out of view, isn't it? Like, we sit on it, you know, you can't see your own. Like, to actually look at someone's anus, like properly look at it, not just penetrate it, but actually look at it. They have to be bending over in front of your face. You're choosing to do that at that point. Or sending you pictures, I guess. I suppose. I'm just glad that Shirley Temple lived in the 20s. (laughs) We don't know what went on with her anus. (laughs) (laughs) Helen, how 
how many minutes should I bake a cake for before it gets all burned and dry? Ollie, how many onions can I slice before my eyes start to cry? And Martin, how many sausages would you like for your evening meal? If you answer me these, I'll be very pleased. That describes how I feel. Thanks very much to our new sponsor, The Great Courses Plus, which is a library of online courses that you can do wherever you are, which is quite handy at the moment if uh, you want to educate yourself or amuse yourself. So you can choose the subject that you're interested in and just like on a video streaming service, you can pick up where you left off whatever device you're on. So you can be cooking in the kitchen and carry on listening to the lecture that you started in the living room, which was about Michelangelo's art or whatever. Yeah, or dog training. There's a wide range of subjects available. They've got a lot of courses about literature and language, which I was drawn to, but then I got sidetracked... (laughs) by one called Math and Magic, which is 12 lectures by a mathemagician. <laughs> because I have no idea at all about how magic tricks work, and I like the fact that there's a lot of boring logistics behind them. I'm very interested to find out more about those boring logistics, about shuffling and card counting and stuff like that. Yeah, and the people who are hosting these lecture series, they are genuine experts. They're people who have worked with National Geographic or the Smithsonian. Or from the Mathemagician Institute of Math Magic. <laughs> <laughs> I've been watching one called The Real History of Secret Societies. Oh, conspiracy theory. Well, no, I, I guess I chose it because, well, for a couple of reasons. One, because there are so many conspiracies. You're never far online, are you, from someone talking about the Illuminati or, you know, the sinister forces or whatever bullshit they've come up with. And I've always been interested in what's the reality behind those perceptions of those societies. Who are they? What do they do? Why do they exist? And then the other reason was because my grandfather was a Freemason. Oh, all right. So that's how you got this gig. <laughs> He was the youngest Freemason in his lodge, I think. Mm. And he even got married uh, to my grandmother in the Freemason's lodge, uh, which is just extraordinary. I can't imagine doing that. I can't talk to him about it now because he's dead. So I wanted to know more about that whole world, really. Well, there's a ton of different subjects on The Great Courses Plus. There's economics, there's wine, there's science. And The Great Courses Plus is giving on to me this, listeners, an entire month of unlimited access to all of these for free. Start your free month at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash answer. That is thegreatcoursesplus.com slash answer. Hello, Helen and Ollie. This is Nick from Boulder, Colorado, and I had a question about stars and flags. There's a ton of flags that have five pointed stars on them. You've got the United States, Puerto Rico, which is a territory of the U.S., but then you have all kinds of other countries with them. Bosnia, Burma, Kosovo, Syria, Cuba, that all have five pointed stars. Then you've got a bunch of flags that have the crescent and star, which is a religious symbol, but then Singapore and Turkmenistan have something that looks kind of like it with a crescent, but more stars. Um, The European Union has five pointed stars, and then you've got all of your flags with lots of points on their stars. Australia has seven points, I think, although New Zealand has a five pointer again. Israel has the Jewish star. Uh, Then you've got some African nations. Jordan has a many pointed star. So here's my question. What's up with all the stars? Why are they so popular on flags? And moreover, why is the five-pointed star such a big deal? A question of flags, I thought I could research this, or I could just go straight to celebrity vexillologist and fellow podcaster Roman Mars for the flag intel. They're symbolic of lots of things, and so they kind of serve lots of purposes. And so that's why they're there. You know, like actually the U.S. flag is is one of the ones that really popularized the five-pointed star it uh not first but but it was prominently there and then and then a lot of other flags more in the uh, 19th century added five pointing stars to their flags so um usually what they do um well is they kind of represent like you know in the u.s a case they represent uh states if you have island nations they often have flags with the number of stars for the different islands um you know they 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 tend to represent uh territories or 
states or something like that. that, that they do that really, really well. And is the five point just the optimal number of points where it looks like a star, but not too cluttered? <laughs> so it start looking like a burr if you put too many on. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that is the optimal. It's like the easiest one to you know symmetrically draw. For one thing, I mean, people know how to draw a five pointed star really, really well. Um, you know, so therefore it's kind of easy to to make and, and cut and sew onto something, which is, you know, actually a concern with flags. And also when it starts to represent each state or something, like what else are you going to use? Just bullet points? <laughs> That's right. Poop emojis? I think stars are the way to go. It's pretty good. It's a pretty good symbol. Okay, but he hasn't really said why stars. Like he's, he's said that they're easier to draw than other things and that they're an elegant way of uh, summing up the constituents of a nation. But what would be the nature of the symbol of a star versus anything else? Well, when you think, well, what else could it be? Then it becomes a little more tricky because, first of all, it was something you could see from anywhere in the world that was impressive before there was this amount of light pollution. Yes. And also implied location. So a lot of the flags do have a constellation on to express them i suppose it's also something of the other world isn't it something supernatural but also not specifically god yeah it's quite grandiose in a way yeah but when you look at them points wise there is a handy wikipedia page called flags with stars and (laughs) the further down you go the more points they have and after about eight they do look more like suns which is another, obviously, universal site, but uh, you only get one, whereas uh, other stars, lots to choose from. But also, flags are often kind of made in patchwork. So you have to make these shapes, and seven points just seems like a real pain in the ass. Yes. It's a lot of tricky angles. That practical point was the one that struck me as the most convincing, actually. But specifically, the Australian flag that Nick from Boulder mentions. Uh, The Australian flag has the Southern Cross, which is a constellation that you can see all over Australia and understandably represents the Southern Hemisphere and it points towards the South Pole. So there's five stars in that. There's like four, like a shape of a kite and then a smaller one. The big stars have seven points, but but apparently the little star that is sort of uh, snuck in there is five points, allegedly to make manufacture easier. And then it also has a seven-point star known as the Commonwealth Star or the Federation Star. And this represents Australia's federation. And it was like, okay, six points for the six initial states of the Commonwealth of Australia. And then they added a seventh for Papua New Guinea, which is independent now, but they kept the seven-point because it's like, well, any other territory that Australia might snaffle in future. And then you get a lot of retcon as well with stars where you get a flag where it's like the point represents blah blah and bullshit bullshit, but it seems yeah. clearly just tacked on at the end. Hi, Helen, Ollie and Martin the Soundman. It's Lucille from Lewisham. Recently I noticed that pucker pies, pucker tees and pucker notepads all share the same name, pucker. I'm assuming that they're not made by the same company, although that would be fun to find out. Answer me this, what is the relationship between the name pucker? They are not related. Uh, the Pucker Pies uh, originate from 1960s Leicestershire, uh, oh. founded by uh, husband and wife team Trevor and Valerie Storer. The original name was the Storer's Homemade Pies. Oh. Pucker Pad was founded in 1999 by Chris Stott, so some 30 years later. And then Pucker Teas uh, originated out of Pucker Herbs uh, in 2001. Uh, so again, two years after mm. Pucker Pad, completely separate. Uh, they were set up by two guys called Tim and Sebastian. Uh, actually, uh, one of them uh, put an advert saying that he wanted to back ethical businesses, and the other one got in touch through the advert. That's how they met. And uh, they're now owned by Unilever. So three ah. completely separate companies. Also, I don't think you can own a particular word that is a word that was around already that you didn't invent. Well, evidently. So you couldn't set up another Pucker Pies. But there's no reason why pucker pies and pucker pads can't be separate businesses. For international listeners who perhaps aren't clear on this, I think we should say pucker pies are pretty much like you get them in the fish and chip shop. They're savoury pies. They're not like fruit pies. A meat or chicken. Yeah, they are very satisfying. Pucker tea is going for a completely different market. They they have a mission statement. They're that kind of company. They say, our herbal creations are crafted to connect as many people as possible to the beauty and power of nature. Very different to the pies. Are you sure? And then the pads are neither pie nor tea. They're just paper. 
Well, actually, they've got a huge range of products I've learned from their website, Helen. Uh, but they are mostly uh, stationery-related products, uh, <laughs> such as pens and pens and stuff. Yeah. Do you think people use the word pucker as slang that much anymore? Because my mum used to use it a lot. And then I think Jamie Oliver used it so much that maybe <laughs> it killed it for everyone. Maybe. Well, the word pucker is uh, one of the many words that came to English uh, through the Raj. So a lot of them are Hindi or Urdu words. Um, these include pajamas, cot, khaki, bungalow, bandana, cushy and cummerbund, and pundit. I was surprised to know. <laughs> yeah. That's from the Hindi word pandit, meaning a learned man. That's interesting because pundit doesn't really mean learned man now, does it? No, not at all. It just means god for hire. Dulali as well. That was a place name. Dulali or Dialali was uh, a town where there was an army base and sanatorium where soldiers in the late 19th century were sent before going home. And so when ones were mentally ill after getting fevers, uh. they were said to have gone Dulali. Pucker was uh, from a Hindi word for absolute so meaning like a true gentleman or an excellent person yeah so on the pucker tees website they say the reason they chose the word pucker was because in hindi pucker means real authentic or genuine so that that does back up your research yeah. does it or fully formed or or cooked or ripe which i suppose is a right, is yeah. fully formed in other ways because the pucker pie website says they chose the fun and fashionable hindi derived word for all things properly good Okay. That is a riff on the same thing, isn't it? Isn't, isn't it interesting they've put a, uh, a fish and chip shop spin, like the way that's written, <laughs> on the same piece of intel? For me, the catch is that I don't find the idea of the Raj fun or cute. Oh, it's quite evocative though, isn't it? It's evocative, but not necessarily something good. I, I just think it's kind of like when you watch Downton Abbey or something and you, you know that there's an upstairs-downstairs component to the story. Yeah, um, that's why I don't watch Downton Abbey, because I don't find that fun. Yeah. It makes okay. me very depressed. Right. <laughs> I am consistent. Well, all right. Lots of people disagree. Lots of people like can, can find something glamorous. Or they're just not thinking about it. Without, well, I don't know. If, I don't think that's true. I think you can read Jane Austen, for example, and be aware of the money from the sugar plantations or whatever and still be interested in the love lives of the characters. Yeah, you can be interested, but I think it introduces a level of discomfort that means things that are casual, where you're like, oh, here's a fun word. You wouldn't necessarily put it on your brand if you're thinking about that. Hmm. But it's still a Hindi word anyway. So it doesn't have to come from the Raj at all, does it? I mean, it, it could be, if, if it's something that's still used in Hindi, then... It came to English via the Raj, though. That's why we have it, because of the British colonialisation of India. Yeah, but I suppose the Pakati people are probably thinking they're bringing it to English from Hindi and disregarding the 50 years of previous use of it, aren't they? Maybe. But the thing is, you can't necessarily. Like, you have to be aware. I agree. Like, you can't use the word queer now to mean just, like, odd or strange, because it has significant other meanings. Right. I'm trying to build a website to bring tourists to Radlit But when I open it up on my smartphone or tablet Something goes wrong and it just looks a bit shit Unlike Hertfordshire itself While try building that website using Squarespace On desktop and devices it will look simply ace As well designed as Hertfordshire with all that lovely green space County of Opportunity and Stevenage Thank you to Squarespace for their support of Answer Me This and uh, for helping, really, a lot of people make much nicer websites than they otherwise would have. I don't want to know how to make a nice website. I'm happy to delegate that to Squarespace and then reap the rewards. Yeah, they're like your virtual IT team. They're much less pass-ag than IT teams I've had dealings with in my previous lives. Yeah, because you just click a button. You don't have to speak to anyone. Although if you do want to speak to someone, if you get stuck designing a website... 24-7 online customer service. That's right. Email, live chat, webinar, they do it all. They also play really nicely as well once you get into the more advanced web design stuff with a whole world of third-party extensions. So you can take payments through Stripe, you can do your bookkeeping through QuickBooks, you can ship products using ShipStation, and it all integrates into the platform that you're using. So you, you need never go anywhere else. If you want to try out Squarespace, then you can have a play around at squarespace.com slash answer. There's a two-week free trial. And then if you like what you built and you want to keep it, when you sign up, you can get a 10% discount off your first purchase of a website or domain using our code ANSWER. Here's a question from Ruth in Sydney, Australia, who says, My partner and I love salt. I've always been a big salt fan and his salt intake has definitely increased since being with me. The other night... While eating baked brie wrapped in pancetta, he posed the question Oof. of why salt is so delicious to humans. Yeah, I bet he looked a picture when he was saying it too. We understand why we may have evolved to crave fatty and sugary things due to their calorific content, but why salt? 
Ollie, answer me this. Why do we have a specific taste, but for something that isn't particularly good for us? Well, we do need sodium, otherwise we die. Right, exactly. So it is natural to have evolved to want some salt. And indeed, it's the only dietary tendency that is pretty much universal around the world. Like wherever you're from, people do add salt in some form to their food. Right. As to why it is addictive, like why is your partner sitting there with dripping brie and pancetta coming out of his mouth? That's a bit harder to answer, but essentially we develop a high tolerance for it the more we have. And I suppose you could say that is a flaw because we don't need that much salt. So it's kind of like cultures that eat a lot of spicy food. Like obviously they can tolerate a lot more spice. Cultures who eat a lot of salt don't notice how much salt they're putting into things. But also if, if you didn't have salt intake, that would be like enormous problems in your body. Correct? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's just knowing when to stop, really. And that there is evidence that humans aren't very good at knowing when to stop eating salt. So, for example, when they've done studies where patients who have had high blood pressure have been asked to cut salt from their diet for health reasons, once they cut salt entirely, they find they can never eat again the things they used to eat that had a really high salt content because going from zero to that is just too much. It's like if you drink a lot of Diet Coke and then you have a Coke for the first time, you're like, fuck, this is sugary. It's like that. Yeah, or just disgusting. You're just a lot more aware of the artificial sweeteners when you go back to those things. Yeah, like I, because of lockdown reasons, I've started eating Pringles recently. We had a tube at the back of the cupboard, which was from a child's birthday party. And I haven't had a Pringle for about five years. It's just not part of my repertoire. And I couldn't believe how salty they are. I don't remember them being that salty. They are intolerably salty to me. Yeah, you can retrain your palate quite quickly. I think just a few weeks to accept less salt and use other seasonings yeah uh, like pepper or chili or other spices so while salt is essential you only need like teaspoon salt a day which is really not that much although some people actually can't train themselves um so apparently there is a subset of people who are the people that have a gene variant that boosts bitterness perception oh interesting that are the people that arguably possibly end up having heart attacks because they're not eating enough green veg so people that have had heart attacks that also have that gene variant They've been studied, <laughs> and it showed that that group are more than twice as likely to eat more than the recommended daily minimum amount of salt, but they're no more likely to eat sugar or saturated fat or alcohol than everyone else. So there does seem to be some common thing there, that if you've got a uh, low tolerance to green vegetables, you'll also not notice how much salt you're putting in stuff. Right. Interesting. Another question of food on the phone line. This is Gail with a question from Ripon in North Yorkshire. I'm wondering why British raisins are covered in oil. You look at the ingredients and they invariably have sunflower oil or palm oil. So they're 99% raisins and then 1% oil. Why is this? I come from California originally, and in California, raisins don't have oil on them. It's not loads of oil. No, you'd hear, you'd expect from her question, covered in oil, she said. Like, you'd imagine barrels of raisins with, like, a layer of oil on, like at Borough Market Olives. No, yeah. not like that. <laughs> no. Hardly noticeable. It's just a coating to stop them sticking together in the packet and also to limit degradation so that mould doesn't grow on them. Can't all live in California, Gail. It also may be that they are oily in California, but Gail didn't look there. Just when you're abroad, you're a lot more sensitive to other countries' things and thinking, is this different? But you never thought to look at home. Well, I think it is possible that in the production of some California raisins, they do use oil, but the they don't write it on the packet. So it's such a small amount that I don't think it qualifies. Or it may just be that food labelling laws are different here and that maybe in California you don't have to disclose a tiny amount of coating oil. Well, also in traditional raisin production, if you've got a farm which is making other things, putting a light coating of oil on them, I presume, would make them less interesting to other animals on the farm when they're drying in the sun. Because otherwise they'd just get eaten, wouldn't they, if they were just out? Well, I read the highlights of a 1970 paper about insect infestation on oiled and unoiled raisins. Just the highlights? Why not the whole thesis? Yeah, well, I'll go back to it later as a treat. They packed some with and some without oil and exposed them to insects and both kinds became infested but after three months raisins that had been treated with oil contained half to two-thirds as many insects as the unoiled raisins and raisins with a double treatment of oil contained one-tenth as many insects wow 
that's great that you've actually found something vaguely academic that backs up a thing that I just had as a hunch. So hopefully that will be some comfort to Gail. 10% as much insect content. I'm an Ansemitist fan. I listen with my nan. She is not so keen. She finds it too obscene. I follow them on Twitter. Though Ashton Kutcher's fitter. I want to take things further. Just one step short of murder. I want to look like Ollie Man. Here's a question from Neil from Chester, who says, Today I was successfully a victim to the 2006 craze of rickrolling, having clicked on a link in a work memo. That is a retro prank. I am surprised people are still doing that. Did you get happy slapped as well, Neil? Oh, oh no. (laughs) Neil says, this made me notice that on Rick Astley's official YouTube account, Mm. Never Gonna Give You Up has now amassed nearly 663 million views. Yeah, 685,773,021 on the day of recording. Wow, so many people have been rickrolled since he sent this in. (laughs) That's so upsetting. People often ask us, don't they, how long does it take between me sending the email to you answering it on the show? And the answer is uh, 20 million rickrolls. What a way to measure time. Neil says, answer me this, taking into account YouTube's monetization changes over the last 15 years, how much has Rick made off the back of the surprise craze of rickrolling? And is it likely to have eclipsed his earnings from his actual musical career? Okay, well, it would be unsurprising to you probably to know that, it, you know, information about exactly how much money he has made is is not public uh, domain information. However, the question of is it likely to have eclipsed his earnings from his musical career, that depends how you interpret that question. Uh, if you are including the indirect earnings that Rick Astley has made as a result of the resurrection of this song. Well, like being on the nostalgia live gig circuit. Yeah. I mean, bear in mind, his career was over. He was retired in 2006. He's now a touring artist in usual times with a number one album in the last five years. You know, he's a big deal again. That's all happened because of Rickrolling. He was on like the bloody BBC New Year's coverage this year. So like either the last song I heard in 2019 or the first song I heard in 2020 was fucking never going to give you up. At least he knows he's got the hit though. Do you know what I mean? Like I admire the fact that he is putting out new music for people that are fans, but also he would never not play that song. You know, he's, he's, he's not going to um, do a radio head. He's never going to give it up. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, I mean, if you include all of that, you know, he's had radio shows, he's gone on tours, he's an artist again, then obviously, yes, uh, the profits of Rick Rowling have eclipsed his musical career. But of course, that ties into his musical career. If you're looking, which I guess the question is really asking, at YouTube royalties, well, they are likely to be minimal, even on a massive hit like that, because um, he is neither the songwriter nor the publisher of that record. Uh. And music videos in general are called promos because they're promotional. The whole point of a music video is people don't really make money out of it being played. The idea is that you're selling the song and the album off the back of the video. So the performance royalty from music video airings is infinitesimally small. But... Obviously, this is the most viewed music video of all time. Uh, So it is worth looking at the numbers. The last time a journalist looked into it uh, was after he got to 230 million hits. Uh, At that point, they calculated he'd made $12. (gasps) What? But, But it is worth pointing out that that was before... Vivo existed. So that was before Google had official channels which do give artists royalties. It was someone had uploaded the video from which Rick Astley had been able to make $12. The main page that Neil is looking at, the one that he got Rick rolled to, is the official Rick Astley page. He is going to be making some more artist royalty out of that than $12. But, I mean, it's probably in the thousands per year. It's probably that kind of number. But then there's affiliated fees as well. So, for example, you can buy a Never Gonna Give You Up t-shirt from that page, and obviously he's getting a huge cut of that, so it's complicated. Right. It's interesting, isn't it, how little money... You make off YouTube or Spotify streams, things like that. Yeah, well, I mean, if he'd written the record and published the record, it'd be a different story. And in fact, this was such a huge hit in the 80s that he said before in interviews he became a millionaire age 22 just off the back of having sung it, Hmm. even though he didn't write it or publish it. You know, it was Stockhaken and Waterman who famously 
like the hit factory might as well have been called we fuck over our artists like the whole point was just yeah. like they're gonna they're gonna create a factory belt of stuff and it doesn't matter who's singing like famously he was the t-boy that was the whole point like he was just some guy but he still nonetheless became a millionaire off the back of this hit so i mean it is a solid gold massive song it's on the radio constantly still isn't it is it I suppose you have worked at Magic, so maybe. <laughs> well, I always found it very difficult on Magic, actually, because with other artists, you could tease ahead. They call it hook and tease. So you're going into the commercial break, and you want to give people a reason to keep listening. So you, you have to say a thing like, coming up, we'll play whatever quiz we're doing, uh, and I'll play one of Madonna's biggest hits from a uh, number one movie from 1994. And then you're thinking, oh, what, what movie did Madonna do a song for in 1994? You can't tease up Never Gonna Give You because as soon as you say, I'll be playing Rick Astley, like, what the fuck else are you going to be playing? You're not going to be playing Angels on My Side, are you? It's got other singles. Just Angels on My Side. <laughs> and you're not going to be playing it. <laughs> that brings us to the end of this episode of Answer Me This. But if you want to have a question answered in future episodes, then please send it via email or a voice memo attached to the email. Or you can try our Skype or phone, but they're not that reliable. But anyway, all of our contact details are available on our website. Answer you can also follow links there to follow us on social media and there will be some exciting answer me this news for you in the next week or two um and follow us individually to hear our other work yeah well actually i, I want to flag up a couple this month but one isn't hosted by me and one is the one that is hosted by me is the modern man my monthly magazine show uh, because we've just done uh, one of our annual how to be a dad episodes which is when I chat to the comedians Tom Price and Stuart Goldsmith about uh, parenthood, about all being dads. We've been doing one of those per year since 2015, so you can follow our whole journey from being pre-dads to being uh, now the fathers of four-year-olds in lockdown, and that's what we talk about in this episode. Uh, How do you explain the pandemic to a four-year-old? What games can you play at home? That kind of stuff. Uh, So that is at modernmanwith2ends.co.uk. But if you enjoy hearing me talk to Tom Price on that episode... Uh, I've just been a guest on his podcast, uh, which is called My Mate Bought a Toaster, which is uh, where he interviews a guest based on their Amazon purchase history. Uh, so uh, I'm proud to say that my episode of that is the longest one he's ever done. He's done Jesus 40 episodes. <laughs> Mine is 57 minutes going through my Amazon history. It's partly because I joined Amazon in 2000, so I had 20 years worth of purchases to look through. Um, it's fun. Uh, you can find that wherever you uh, get your podcast. Just search for My Mate Bought a Toaster. I was uh, on Stuart Goldsmith's podcast, since you mentioned him. Oh, the comedian's comedian. And my podcast, The Illusionist, is coming back this month. Uh, so find that at theillusionist.org. And also Veronica Mars Investigations is powering through season two of Veronica Mars Apace. And uh, you can find that at vmipod.com. And we did a special recapping the 1995 BBC miniseries of Pride and Prejudice, uh, which... It's like getting the notes to pass your GCSEs without actually having read the book. Uh, you can listen to uh, the podcast I make about Tom Waits. We do talk about every Tom Waits song in chronological order, and that's called uh, Song by Song. Uh, and also, if you like uh, music, you could uh, get. I've just been re- releasing remastered versions of my old music, and you can hear all of those at palebird.bandcamp.com or wherever you get music, Spotify. Apple Music, all of that stuff. Remember as well to subscribe to this show, Answer Me This, to get our retro episode in the middle of the month. Each month, we re-release just for one month only something from our archives. Mm. And if you would like to buy something from our archives, you can do that too at answermethisstore.com. And then return here for a fresh new episode of Answer Me This on the first Thursday of next month. Bye! Bye. Bye.